in tonight by uh, just going over some shipping details. Uh, if you um, gave my wife money for the notes last Thursday, uh, there's a sign-up list over there on the, on the table right next to the tape sign-up list. If you would sign if you gave her the money, because we're trying to track who paid for the notes, so we know how many notes to make. Um, and if you want, and from now on, if you do give my wife money, if you'd sign up over there, so that's how we can calculate how many notes, because what happens is we get a set of notes, and then somebody wants extra copies. So then we run extra copies, and then we don't run enough extra copies, and then we, we run to the store three or four times doing this. So, um, or then we make too many notes, and nobody's at class. So we're trying to get some predictability on the notes. Not mandatory that you have them. It's just if you want them, though, if you sign up on that sheet over there, appreciate it. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you have not uh, left history without evidences of who you are, that we may come to know you, and that you have spoken to us through your prophets and in the writings of Scripture, that we can come to those writings over the centuries of time and realize that truth is truth whichever century it occurs, that truth is always abiding, it never changes, because that's what makes it truth. We thank you for the relationship that we can enjoy through the risen Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray that you would continue to open hearts to who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Um, what I wanted to do is get you used to some of these uh, more practical verses that use some of the principles and doctrines that we've taught here. So tonight, if I want to just review three promises. And I want to ha- direct your attention to each of these three promises in the Scripture. These are things that really we should memorize. You don't, have, you know, don't have to memorize them for some test or something. But um, it's just that these are very realized. There's a rationale behind them. So what I want to do, I want to spend just a few minutes tonight pointing out these three verses pointing out where they challenge the flesh. Because all of us have a depraved, fallen flesh that wants to go its own independent way, and we get in trouble. And we have to learn to rule and to have dominion over our flesh. And the fallen nature needs to be, needs to be ruled. And so the life of Christ is supposed to do that. But he uses means, and one of the means is learning some verses, verses that can be quickly recalled in an emergency. But what I want to show is that these verses, while we can, if we memorize them, they will come to mind. The Holy Spirit will bring them to our minds, oftentimes in the middle of a crisis. And, and for a few minutes, those verses can stabilize us. The problem is that um, we'll tend to just go on and ten minutes later we're doing the same thing all over again. What we want to do though is let the verse circulate in our hearts and then when we're conscious of these verses to think through the theological background, the truths behind those verses. And I want to demonstrate that. So let's uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. That's a verse that people known for years. Um, And 
also in, in memorizing or committing some of these m verses to memory if you've never done this before. Um, my experience is you probably best do it in one of two ways. One is either settle on a translation that's comfortable to you and get used to that translation. Now, when I was a new Christian, the people that led me to the Lord got me into the King James Version, and I memorize much easier in the King James than I do in any modern translation. Uh, there's a syntactical reason for that. King James has syntax, has a rhythm to it that the modern English translations don't. But whatever the translation is that you like, um, use that. Um, and the second thing is, you might want to do it, if you capture the thought of the verse, is put it in your own words. There's nothing wrong with putting verses in your own words. Um, the apostles did that all the time. Many of the quotes that the apostles put in the New Testament are not exactly verbal quotes out of the Old Testament. They're kind of reworkings, sometimes. And uh, it's clear that that's the way they, they just knew the truths in those verses, and that's how they remembered them. So, uh, in Hebrews 11.3, um, it says, in, in the translation I'm using up here, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then, of course, the rest of chapter 11 goes into what faith is all about. But verse 3 is a very, very important um, focus, spotlight, on, on something. Because all the references that follow verse 3 don't follow properly if, verse three, if the truth of verse 3 is incorrect. Verse 3 cuts completely across the natural man. Um, I've used this diagram up here before, but the natural man wants to do this. That's a picture of the spirit of the flesh. I want it my way, and I'm going to do it my way, and I really don't want God interfering with it. After I do it, then I'll invite him on in to join me. But this is the spirit of autonomy. And when we have that kind of uh, mentality, it works its way out in different ways. And we've looked at this diagram also, uh, but we'll see a lot more this year. Um, this is what's going on in our minds this is sort of a diagram of unbelief. And it's a sort of an analysis of unbelief, what it does. And we have summarized it is that, and this goes for any little crisis in the day, any little problem, this is not just some philosophic abstraction here, a definition of the flesh or what the pagan mind thinks like is, we li try to think like God independently of God. Two completely impossible things to do. Trying to think like God. What do we mean by trying to think like God? Because if we don't make the Word of God our authority, we have to substitute something else for it. You say, oh, no, I don't. Yes, you do. If you have any kind of thought process, you've got an absolute. Even the person who says everything is relative, that is an absolute statement. So every time you say, well, that's wrong, it's an absolute statement. Well, I don't believe in that. That's right. Absolute statement. This is absolute statement. So you're making absolute statements all along. So either you're making them consciously following out submission to the authority of Scripture, or we're making absolute statements consciously following the spirit of autonomy. 
and doing it ourselves. So that's what we mean. If we don't go with the Word of God, then we wind up inventing surrogate truth. And this has a number of features which we'll get into later, but the thing tonight to remember is that it's always trying to deal with finite experience and trying to generalize on the basis of our little finite experience in time. And we're making these grandiose pronouncements about what's right, what's wrong, what's true, and what's false. And we, our database is so small. Even if you lived 120, your database is still small compared to the need to support these kind of statements. So what we want to do um, as Christians is we want to replace that line of thinking with dependent, thinking that is dependent upon the authority of Scripture and consciously remembers that God has thought things through first. So we define biblical thinking or spiritual thinking as we think God's thoughts after him, meaning he's thought about it first. So we're thinking about things that he's already thought about. We're not pioneering anything here. We're followers. We're not pioneers. We're not ahead of God. We're not alongside of God. We're following after God, after he has created, after he has thought through the plan of history. Then we come along and we reflect upon what he's already done. And that's the proper way of viewing this whole thing. God's pre-existing thought, language, and meaning leads to a derivative sense of thought, word, and meaning. And if we don't have this, then we cannot have that. You cannot have thought, language, and meaning of any substance whatsoever if God wasn't there first to establish that meaning, thought, and language. And the result of this kind of thinking is that we enjoy a faith rest in the Word of God. That's where we come to what we call cognitive rest. There's no more explanations. That's what we mean by resting. There's no more authority that proves this. No, no. This is the authority that proves everything else. That's why it's a faith rest. It comes finally to the motion ceases here. We trust in him and what he has said. So these verses are practical ways of illustrating this. And this slide I showed last time... See if we can get that a little bit better. Oh, let's look first on the right side of that graph. Life has a lot of puzzles, pieces. Each one of those pieces we can reason together and seems to fit. You know, the, the color and the size and so on. We can, we can fit. This makes sense, this piece. The problem is that this piece, we can't see how it fits that piece. What God's doing in our life, we can't figure out what God's doing in our spouse's wife. What God is doing in our life, we can't figure out how that works with our children's lives. Those are pieces. And while sometimes as we grow in the Lord, we can find more and more uh, conjunction of pieces, sometimes we'll never, maybe even in eternity, we'll go on for millions of years. And the pieces only gradually come together or maybe never come together. So, as a Christian, we have to, we, instead of trying to create this final solution to the puzzle, what we have to do in the middle of life circumstances is realize that the puzzle is in his mind. And it's solved there. In his omniscience, as the creator, it fits together. Now, Hebrews 11.3 is asserting that truth on the right-hand side of the diagram. Let's look at it carefully. By faith... We understand that the worlds, that the Greek word there is the ages, the ages of history, or the dispensations. We understand that the ages, 
And if that's expounded, always look in the context. What's the context? It's talking about Noah. It's talking about all the biblical saints and their lives. The events of their lifetime, their personal histories. So you could paraphrase verse 3 as, By faith, we understand that our experiences, our historical experiences, were prepared by the Word of God. That means all of our experiences, everything in the zone of our experience, whether it's a disaster, whether it's a crisis, whether it's a blessing, that's all part of our experience. And it says that by faith we understand that all historical experiences were prepared by the Word of God. And the Greek there for the word word uses an interesting word. There's a, one word is called logos, L-O-G-O-S, and that's our word word. But the word that's used here is rhema, and it's the word for speak. So this verse, the sense of this verse is, by faith we understand that historical experience has been prepared by God's speech. Meaning, not only has he thought it, but he speaks it. And what, what of the Trinity, first, second, or third person of the Trinity, is involved in speaking? Speaking. It's a second person. So, this is very Christocentric, this verse. By faith, we understand that historical experiences have been prepared by the speaking of God. So that, now here's the conclusion to the rationale so that what is observed, that's our, what we see and experience, what we, ex- what we can see with our eyes, what we can taste, what we can touch, what is seen is not made out of things that are apparent or apparent historical causes. Let's think of the implication of this verse for a minute. What this verse says is that things that occur in our lifetime Things that occur in our lives that we can touch, feel, taste, describe, and know come about not through any causes that are apparent. It's not denying the fact that there's a natural law, quote-end-quote. It's not denying that, the regularity of God. What this verse is asserting, however, is that there's a greater plan behind the observed plan. And it's this plan inside the mind of God. Remember, it's above the dotted line. Anything above the dotted line means it's inside God's head. So, God has this perfect plan, and from this perfect plan, He shapes history. It is not true that God's like a watchmaker, and He winds up the watch and lets it go. Because in that case, the watchmaker is not making the watch tick. The watchmaker has walked out of the room and left the watch going. That's wrong illustration. It's not verse 3. What does it say? The ages, plural, all areas and chunks of history have come about not out of things that are apparent. Now, what does this finally say to us? It says that no matter how much data that you have and that I have, we will never be able to sit here as human beings and fathom the data so well that we can predict the next moment. That's what they're saying. Because as we move from this moment into the future, as the clock ticks, and we walk into the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, when we get there in the next moment, that moment has been constructed not from things that appeared in the previous moment. 
The previous moment is insufficient to explain the next one. There's some sort of a mysterious working of God in history. So when you go down and further read, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice, which he obtained uh, a be- uh, because he was righteous. Enoch was taken so he should not see death. Noah was warned in verse 7 about this. If, if there had been a scientist with an advanced computer system in Noah's day, what verse 3 is telling us is that if he turned on his prediction model, it would never have predicted the flood. The computer model would never have predicted what happened. And so what God is saying is that history and your personal experience is going to be full of surprises, surprise effects that happen. They just happen. And they happen for no apparent reason. So the things which we see did not come about by the things which are apparent. They came about by some other means, and the other means is in the first part of verse 3, the speech of God. The, the reason why I think the author there uses speech is because it's the idea of God speaking all the time, not just the creation. If you're really curious to have a picture of how this works, I direct your attention, and we won't turn there because we don't have time tonight, but just write it down. For in 1 Kings 22, somewhere around that, that, that area of the Old Testament, you'll see a meeting that was called by the Lord. And at this meeting, which apparently occurs frequently in history, all the angels, both good and evil, come, come into the meeting room. And the Lord discusses how history is going to go with these angelic beings. And they actually have a meeting in 1 Kings 22. And they're discussing what they're going to do about history. And history hasn't been determined until the meeting's finished. And then when they get through discussing, the Lord says, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this. Okay, guys, let's roll. And it would be, you know, you talk about a news story. Everybody worried about what Greenspan and the Federal Reserve meeting are going to do. You know, when Greenspan speaks, everybody gets a cold. Well, imagine if you got a tape of this meeting and you could somehow figure out what God and the angels are doing. And they're discussing, well, what are we going to do with China? What are we going to do with the United States? What are we going to do next week? Then, if you, if you could imagine yourself listening in on that kind of a meeting, then, and you came back to this world, would you any longer believe that you could sit down and predict the future? No, because the future is constantly being interfered with from outside. That's verse, chapter 11, verse So, that's a neat verse. By faith, we understand that all the elements of our experience are formed, have come into being, under God speaking. And therefore, the things which we see, the things which bug us, the things which bless us, those things did not arise from apparent causes. And it gives you a proper view of the whole universe. It gives you a proper view of life. That it's all open to the God who speaks. <clears throat> all right, tonight we're going to look at the note section that we handed out <clears throat> concerning... Um, the two terms that Jesus Christ used to depict his deity and his humanity. And we said uh, in last year when we were going through this that in the Old Testament there are two streams of revelation. There is one stream, stream number one, stream number two. A stream number one, that's a collection of truths that go on book after book after book after book in the Bible. This stream of revelation says that the place of God's dwelling is where? 
Galaxy 555? No. The place of God's dwelling is this planet. And in particular, it is with men. So, the first stream says that God dwells, or will dwell, I should say. The whole purpose of history is that he will dwell with man. Anybody remember the name of God that speaks to this? It's the name that God shared with Moses in the burning bush. Moses asked God, Who shall I say? You are. And what does God say? He says, Tell them that I am sent you. And you read that in the translation, and you think, I am? That's kind of a funny way of expressing it. But hidden inside all that is a sense. And here's a sense of the term that most scholars believe is implied in the text. I am the God who is with you. And in particular, Moses was watching the burning bush. And what was strange about the burning bush that caught Moses' sight? Remember the story? He saw it burning, but what wasn't happening? The bush wasn't being consumed. So, it was a picture of the, of the horror of the suffering of Israel in, in servitude in Egypt. And God is with his people. So, I am. So, in the very name of God, the tetragrammaton that looks in Hebrew like this, Y-H-W-H, read from right to left, translated, therefore, is Y-H-W-H. And the vowels are unknown because they dropped. And so, most people uh, believe that it's Yahweh. This was translated into English. The Y became J. The H down here. The W became a V. And this, and from which we get the word Jehovah. That's where Jehovah came from. It's an anglicized version of the transliteration of the Tetragrammaton. But whatever it is, I always have to laugh at this because the people come to your door, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, whatever it is, his original name wasn't pronounced Jehovah. So that much we know, because of the vowel patterns. So anyway, the, the issue is that here's God's name, and it represents the stream of revelation, that God's ultimate end goal is to dwell with man. The other stream of revelation, this, if this stream looks down, this stream looks up, and says that man will dominate the universe, He's made to dominate the universe, and out of him in particular will come one king who will rule all men. So there's, that's the humanity side. And in the Old Testament, there are several passages where these come together. The most famous passage in all the Bible in the Old Testament where these two streams of revelation come together is Psalm 110. If you turn there for a moment. This is a very difficult psalm to imagine how David ever saw this. Obviously, he must have been uh, revealed to... This, this was revealed to him uh, by the Holy Spirit because uh, it's a very complex set of, of, of um, statements here. Psalm 110. It's cited very, very often in the New Testament. New Testament authors are very conscious of this Old Testament passage. The Lord says to my Lord, now see right there, you've got a problem. David's talking about his Lord, but he's talking about another Lord. So you've got two 
Lord's here. The, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So the first Lord says to the second Lord, sit, and, at, sit until I subdue the enemies for you. And then it says the Lord, by the way, you notice the word L-O-R-D is capitalized, Lord number one, here's Jehovah. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, rule in the midst of thy enemies. And thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power in holy array from the womb of dawn, so forth and so on. So, David is talking about the Father and the Son here. He's talking about also the deity and humanity of Jesus. So, here's one case where this king is called Lord and begins to show himself as to having divine attributes. Well, let's proceed now to where these two streams come together in two terms that are used in the Bible for Jesus Christ. First, let's look at the term, the Son of God. If you look in your notes, I give you a quick summary there in the notes of this term and how it came to be. First occurrence uh, where you kind of see its content is in Genesis 6, where it's talking about the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And this is the antediluvian world, and presumably the sons of God there are the angelic civil government prior to the flood, people who had power to capitally punish. Then uh, in the notes on page 1, it talks about the people who received governmental authority in Psalm 82 are referred to as sons of God. That word politicians are called sons of God there. The kings were called sons of God. Well, if that's so, then what's one of the first connotations we learn about the term son of God? What, what is the content of that meaning early on before we get to Jesus? It means one who rules, one who has authority over against the sons who aren't of God. See, there's a bifurcation of authority there. So, Son of God implies some sort of authority, and in the first instances, oddly enough, it's civil authority. So, we want to watch how the term develops in the Bible. And we want in particular, tonight, we want to look at Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 is probably the most uh, quoted in the New Testament. Psalm where the Son of God is explained in more detail. This is, uh, those of you who know Handel's Messiah, who recognize the verse, Handel used this a lot in, in that piece of music. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth. Now look at the context, the situation, the first three verses. The peoples, dividing the the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against who? There's two personalities there. Against Yahweh, here's the tetragrammaton again in Hebrew, looks like this, against the Lord and his Messiah. The word Messiah is anoint. By the way, where did that come from? Why is the Messiah, it's just a, it's an anglicized version of Masach, to, to anoint. Can any of you think of the picture of where you see anointing of a king in the Old Testament? Story of David. And what did, the, what did the prophet do to David? What did the prophet do to Saul? Poured oil on him. That's anointing. 
And that's where that term came from. But again, when did the prophet pour oil on somebody and who did he pour oil onto? Anybody? No. He poured oil on the person who would rule. See the connection? Civil authority again. So the Son of God comes into his scriptural history with the idea of a ruler. Right from the start. Right from the start it has that. And in verses 1, 2, and 3, you'll notice that it's in the context of all the nations of the earth. Which means that not only is this Yahweh and the Messiah, but it adds something else, and it means it is a world ruler. Because look at the plural there. The kings, plural, of the earth gather together and come against the Lord and his singular is a singular anointed one. It doesn't say anointed ones, plural. It's talking about one anointed person. So now we have the concept the Son of God now expands beyond just civil authorities and it becomes a world civil authority. One who rules the world. And verses 4 through 6 gives us more details about the Son of God. He who sits in the heaven laughs. Lord said, this person is under persecution, he's being resisted, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to him in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have, and this is what God says, verse 6 is a quotation from God's mouth. Remember Hebrews, he just said God reigns history by speaking. So God says something, and in verse 6 is what God himself says. And he says, as for me, I have installed my king where? New York City, Berlin, Taiping, Southern Hemisphere? No, it's a place, Mount Zion. By the way, it doesn't say heaven either, verse 6. Verse 6 refers to a place on this planet, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. So they add something else. Now we have a civil authority, we have a world ruler, and we have him located. Location? It's located in Jerusalem. So now the Son of God has more, more content. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me... Now here's where the word son gets a lot of rich content from. But we have to be careful. Because people have taken verse 7 and 8 and made an illegitimate conclusion from it, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Maybe some of you can see where you can get in trouble here if you don't read carefully. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give thee the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthware. Now you see the word... This day have I begotten thee. Now, when this psalm is quoted in the New Testament, how do you suppose the New Testament authors interpret this psalm? Well, the book of Hebrews interprets it by saying that this begetting is identical to the coronation of the king, which is equal to Jesus Christ's resurrection and ascension. Now, Jesus was the Son of God before his ascension, because he's said to be that in the New Testament. But the idea is, 
did Jesus Christ, when he walked around the earth, known as the Son of God, did he or did he not have a manifest, obvious, political and civil authority? Well, no, he wasn't. I mean, he was a Jewish carpenter that never exercised any civil authority. So, what the New Testament authors have done here is they've picked up this motif of the Son of God ruling, ruling, and said, when does Jesus Christ begin to be installed, as it were? He begins when he sits down at the Father's right hand. And it's not done there because he still isn't in Jerusalem because verse uh, 6 isn't fulfilled yet because he hasn't returned to Jerusalem to reign yet. So his civil authority really still isn't even manifest. What is manifest today is what? What kind of authority does Jesus have? He has all authority. But what's going on in the unseen world with the church as preparatory to this coming kingdom that is to come on this planet? The church is doing battle as people convert from the world of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are having a defection from the God of this world to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time somebody is evangelized and trusts the Lord, it's a disaster for the God of this world because he's lost another person. He, his kingdom becomes less and less certain as one after another, men, women, and children, defect. That's what's going on. That's the role of the church. We cause defection from the God of this world, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So the Lord Jesus is wooing people out of the kingdom at this hour. And there will come a time when that will change because notice it says, Ask of me, that's the Father talking to the Son, Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. So we want to understand that the king is asked, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is challenged to ask the Father for the nations of the earth. And obviously he's doing that because he's praying all, as an intercessory high priest, he's praying all these prayers. And then verse 9 says that he will ultimately rule all nations. That's the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. Verse 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 2 concludes with a warning to all civil authorities with due respect to the ACLU. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Meaning, kings of the earth, you may be called sons of God with a little S and a little G. But I'm telling you about the Son of the God and understand that you will be answering to his authority. So what this whole psalm concludes with the fact that the Son of God exercised world dominion and as it says, and this proves his deity is implicit in Psalm 2 because up to this point you can say, well, he's just a human ruler. Well, if he's just a human ruler, how do you explain verse 12? Let's look at verse 12. Do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are they who take refuge in him. Would that be said of a human being? Can you imagine in a monotheistic religion of the Bible, God encouraging people to worship a man? 
So the psalm ends with the fact that the Son of God is more than a man. He's actually God. And that's why, in the notes, if you look at that diagram on page 2, you'll see that in your mind's eye, the term Son of God looks at the human nature of the civil authority, but it penetrates into that king that rules until inside that person they see he is more than a man, he is God. Just like the centurion at the cross. I believe this, is the, this was the Son of God. Experienced Roman army officer who knew authority and understood authority. When he saw Jesus Christ die on the cross, he saluted. He never in his battles and the battles in, the old t in, the, in ancient history were really grotesque. I mean, it was face-to-face -face combat. And this guy had gone through this. And he saw the Lord Jesus Christ die on the cross, and it was such an impressive thing for this experienced Roman officer that he said, this is the Son of God. And he became a Christian, born again. So... That's the idea of the Son of God. It weaves together the humanity of a civil authority with the deity of the person of that civil authority, such that all civil authority ultimately bows to him. That's Psalm 2, and a number of other Psalms. So that's a quick portrait of the Son of God idea. Now we want to come to one that's a lot more difficult, the Son of Man. So to see that, let's turn in our Old Testaments to Daniel chapter 7. Notice we haven't got into the New Testament. Can't understand the New until we understand something of the Old. The people who wrote the Old Testament, the people who heard the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself as a Jewish male, knew the Old Testament text. It's presumed that any reader of the New Testament knows the Old Testament. And that's why we have so many people screwed up in the New Testament. Because they don't know the Old Testament. Reading all kinds of things in the New Testament aren't there. Because they don't know the Old Testament. Well, this is a tough chapter. And when, this is not a prophecy conference, so we won't get into all the details of it. But I'm going to have to move pretty rapidly in our remaining time to get weighed through some of the content in this chapter so we understand this next term, the Son of Man. One of the first things about this Son of Man title is just to look at the words for a moment. Son of Man. If you take your concordance and you look this word up, this expression, you will never find the apostles calling Jesus Son of Man. Never once. They use an idea, as I'll point out. They use the idea... But for some reason, they never refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. The only person that seemed to refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man was Jesus. It was his title that he used on several specific occasions to communicate something. And somebody read the notes very carefully. And there's a corrected verse in here on page 4. I know at least one person in this room read those notes because they called me and they said, you've got a typo in page 4. And that is Matthew 26.65, not Matthew 23.65. So, if you'll hold Daniel 7, 
Turn to Matthew 26, because I wanted you to see the reaction when Jesus used this word, people got hot. This term is loaded with meaning that we have lost. And if he used the term to me, everybody would yawn and go on to the next verse. But they didn't yawn when he used it in this time. Matthew 26, 65. First look at verse 64. Here's Jesus being interrogated prior to his death. And he said to him, they asked him, are you the son of God? Notice the term, by the way. Verse, uh, verse 63, the interrogators want him to confess that he is the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And if you have a marginal reference, you see where that's from. That's why we're going to Daniel 7. Then the high priest, who hears this quotation from Daniel chapter 7, really flips out. He tore his robes saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? You have now heard the blasphemy. And they, they answer the crowd that heard this, Death to him. He has blasphemed. Now, you and I wouldn't consider that blasphemy. So there must be something we're not getting out of that term. Because we don't tear our clothes. And you couldn't imagine... Even uh, Dan Rather and CBS tearing his suit if somebody interviewed uh, said, I'm the son of man. Have to, uh, CBS have to go get a dictionary to find out how to spell it. Let's go back to Daniel 7. So, the son of man is a tarred title. And we'll be lucky tonight to get to capture some of the meaning of it. Let's go back then to this moment in time when this amazing individual out of Old Testament history, a foreign minister of two nations, we have a man of Iranian extraction at church, Ekusefi, and he's fond of pointing out that Daniel was both reigning an advisor, a foreign policy advisor to Iraq and Iran, two nations that are out each other's throats today. But at one point and the other point in this man's career, he had a, he had a dual national, national career. And chapter 7 uh, occurs when he's actually in the Iraqi part of his career, that is Babylon. In the early part of his thing, this is the mid-5th century, mid-6th century B.C. occurs. Remember, those of you who have gone through the Old Testament with me, in Old Testament history, you go from... Moses in 1400, there's the origin of the nation. You come down to David, 1000 B.C. Then you come down to what? What's the next big event where we go like this for 70 years? That's called the exile. And it started in 586, ended in 516. Daniel, the, the nation was totally destroyed. Daniel was a hostage. He was taken into captivity and basically took the Jewish boys who were well-educated and trained because they knew that the people back in Palestine are going to fool around because I get your son. So you keep messing around and you're going to lose your son. So they weren't stupid. The Babylonians ruled people that way by taking hostages. So Daniel was a hostage and he was in a horrible situation, but he grew into that situation and became very successful and wound up as the foreign policy advisor to the nation who had destroyed his nation. 
Amazing story of this man. And Daniel, this book of Daniel, is not considered in the Hebrew canon to be among the prophets. And we always think of Daniel as a book of prophecy. But Daniel is really not a book about prophecy. It has prophecy in it. The book of Daniel is a wisdom book. A wisdom book, you say? Yes, Daniel is a wisdom book. It is a handbook. It's a political handbook to people who want to understand international relations. What was Daniel doing? Every day of his life as a counselor to the king. He was dealing with international relations. Have you ever had a course on international studies? Have you ever studied Daniel in that course? I don't think so. Daniel gives you what foreign policy people need to know about the framework of history and the forces of history. So, in the year of Belteshazzar, Daniel saw a dream and a vision as he lay on his bed. And in this dream and in this vision, Daniel is going to be taught about how God rules in history from the time of the exile all the way down to the very end of history and how Israel is going to play a role in that, in that function. Well, Daniel said, I was, walking, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and it said, Arise and devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, little one, came up among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great deeds. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flame, its wheels a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before... And it says, Then I kept looking, because of the sound of the boastful words, I kept looking until a beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking at the night visions, and behold... Now here's the passage that Jesus quoted that freaked out the high priest. I kept looking at the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Now very quickly, this is a story of the four kingdoms of world history that the Bible considers to be anchor kingdoms. Not necessarily the great kingdoms, but we'll call them the anchor kingdoms. And I'm going to draw a little diagram here. It looks like some bricks. 
with dashed lines. The first kingdom is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The next one is the Media Persian. The next one is the Greeks. The next one is the Romans. These are, some of these are future to Daniel. This is why the liberals can't stand this book and insist on trying to late date the book because it's so accurate in its depiction of history it couldn't possibly have written before it happened, you know. I mean, good, you know, God might have done that. So, the Babylonian kingdom is an anchor kingdom. Now, what's, why is this? It says the dominion was allowed. The kingdom ended. The dominion was ended, but these beasts kept going. They were absorbed into the next kingdom. And the media Persian, the Babylonian kingdom, were absorbed into the Greeks. And the Greeks and the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, were absorbed into the Romans. What was absorbed? The suggestion I give out to you is that the, the signature of the Babylonian kingdom was basically financial. The Babylonians in history were the ones that basically invented government-inflated currencies. They were the ones who promulgated very actively multiple indebtedness. They were financiers of a brilliant type. And underneath the world kingdoms lies finances, international finances, are very profoundly related to Babylon. And the Babylonian theme runs again and again in history. The media Persian Empire was known for its unity of East and West. Persia sat with Europe to the West, with the Orient to the East. And the Persians welcomed, it was through traffic, through Persia. They were the people who were the reconcilers, the people who had multiculturalism, but in a world government type way. They amalgamated. So there was a coalescing of all the cultures in Persia. And the Greeks, what were the Greeks known for if you study the Greeks? They were known as the people who began thorough rationalism of the intellect. The Greeks were the ones who took autonomous thought to its logical conclusion such that John Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, said you could take all of the philosophers from Aristotle and Plato on down to the present time and say that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato. The Greeks started intellectual rationalism. And then the Romans. What did the Romans, this fourth beast that Daniel feared, what were the Romans known for? Order. Law and order. And in particular, a, a special kind of law and order. A law of an order that we would say is bureaucratic and administrative law. They were the, uh, the bureaucrats par excellence. They developed order. It was always the desire of the Romans to have order. They couldn't stand the Jews and all their silly little wars in the, in the eastern part of the empire. The Roman army marched in and they brought order everywhere they went. They built roads. They built seaports. They facilitated world trade. The idea was man will build his autonomous kingdom. He will control the finances, he will define culture, he will reason through, and he will build, finally, political power and administrative law. To see this has come over into the 20th century, even though the Roman Empire has done Here's a quote I found back um, a number of years ago by John Dewey, who was a great thinker at the Columbia University. He was a person who my some of the teachers in my family thought he hung the moon. 
Yeah, he was the guy who basically controls and still does influence educational philosophy in our public school system. Here's what he had to say about Christianity and society and this idea of kingdom. In his book, Common Faith, Dewey says, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal, that's his idea of the final world kingdom, the democratic ideal, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without the surrender of the conception of the basic division to which Christianity is committed. What stands in the way of the kingdom, according to John Dewey? It's Christians. Why? Because Christianity divides men into what groups? The saved and the lost. You can't build a polis. You can't build a kingdom when you have this constant division all the time. And that gospel of Christ divides people. It is not politically correct if Dewey had lived in our time. So, Daniel sees these four kingdoms. This kingdom kind of goes away in history, but will come back again that Roman kingdom, along with all these elements, when the church is raptured and we get into this prophecy and the details of it, there's a reason why Rome is kind of weak right now, the Roman Empire in the sense of this order. One of the reasons is the church is a restraint on it. And when the church is restrained, is removed, all of the paganism, all of the energies that are being subdued right now, like a thing on a boiling pot of water, will suddenly come off. And you will see the reconciliation of all this back again into this great and grand kingdom. The kingdom of all kingdoms, when man rules and has subdued the earth, supposedly. But, God, but in this vision, in verses 9 and 10, there's an interruption. You notice how the vision falls? Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. Then watch verse 11 and 12. 11 and 12 follow verse 8. Verse 9 and 10 is an interruption. It's back to Hebrews 3 again. All of a sudden, down on earth, you have men planning this, planning that, doing this, and doing that. But what's happening in heaven? The Ancient of Days calls a meeting. We have a little discussion about what's going down on earth. We'll see who are the real lords and gods. We will see where history is really going. So the idea is that suddenly there is a judgment, there is courts, and there are books that are opened. But you see, a court has to have some mechanism of execution. And verses 13 and 14 provide that mechanism. That God, at the end of history, is going to create a fifth kingdom. And this fifth kingdom will never end. Notice the emphasis at the end, his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed in contrast to what kingdoms that are destroyed? The kingdoms of men. But here is one whose kingdom will never destroy. But that goes back to the evil. How can a holy God guarantee that this kingdom will never be destroyed? Well, let's put our thinking caps on here a minute. Let's think about this. If you see a promise that this kingdom will never, ever be destroyed, what is implied by that statement? The kingdom must be what? Moral and ethically pure. And it must be guaranteed to endure. 
in righteousness. For if it isn't, God will judge it. So here's a promise that this kingdom must endure forever. The question now is, these other kings, kingdoms, these other four kingdoms, all had symbols. What was common to all four of those symbols? They were, in contrast to the fifth kingdom. What do you see is different? They have symbols, but what? They're all animals. Those four kingdoms are all animals. There's only one of the five kingdoms that's represented by a man. What do you suppose that hints at? God is looking at the moral and ethical content of social order. And what this passage is saying is that Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome have utterly failed in forming a social order worthy of man. They are all subhuman. In their ethical character, these kingdoms are subhuman. They do not do justice to the man who was created in the image of God. Only the fifth kingdom will be ruled by the Son of Man. And by the way, let's look at that term again. Son of Man, the word there is Adam. Which brings us back to Genesis 1. The Son of Man, the Son of Adam. What does the Son of Adam do? He does what God said man would do. And what did God say in Genesis 1 that man would do? He would subdue. He would rule. He would take command of all of the handiwork of God. This Son of Man is the one who does this. He comes, He has a kingdom that will never end in perfect righteousness. And He is one who fulfills the Genesis mandate of finally and completely domineering the entire universe. It won't be pets. It will be people who dominate the universe. It will not be some spider on a tree. It will be a son of man that will rule, finally. There will be ecological righteousness, but it will be a man who rules forever and ever and ever. So summarizing the Son of Man, here's what we learn. Number one, the Son of Man harks back to Genesis 1 and the fulfillment of the purpose for the human race to begin with. Second, the Son of Man indicates moral perfection. For He will have a kingdom that shall never fail. And that can only be done under a holy God if that kingdom is holy and stays holy. The third thing we know from this passage is that the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coalesce in the Son of God. The Ancient of Days is the deity of the vision. The Son of Man is the humanity of the division. And these two are united in Jesus Christ. We know this because Jesus Christ sees himself in terms of verse 13 and 14 before the high priest. Yet in the book of Revelation, he sees himself in terms of verses 9 and 10. Jesus Christ fulfills both the role of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. So this, this phrase, if you'll look in the notes again now, the idea there is that the mind's eye looks at the clouds coming, that is the judgment of God, God's very presence. 
and sees at the very throne of God Himself, not a Martian, not a cherub with four heads on it of animals, but what is seen at the very throne of God. Finally and completely, there's a man there. Not somebody else. There's a man. One who has Adam's genes. He finally made the throne of God. You see how exalting it is for the purpose of man? That's the purpose that God has. And the Son of Man unites the humanity and the deity, but in an opposite way from the Son of God. Here we look first at God and His throne and His mysteries of history, and we see at the very core of His purpose the rule of man. So we finally wind up with humanity, but we're looking at deity to get there. The Son of God term looks at a human king, looks very studiously at this human king, and penetrates to his heart and sees there's God there. So both these terms are sort of like foils of the other one. One the Son of God, and one the Son of Man. They're loaded with all kinds of stuff that we can just barely skim tonight. But I want to show you, as to reinforce what we dealt last time, the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ, is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. And folks, don't ever be embarrassed to say that. Don't ever kowtow to some of the monotheistic so-called biblical religions like Judaism and Islam who claim to be so biblical and they lack the God-man. You know why the God-man is so important? Because it means that God himself walked around in this, on this planet. He knows what it means to be a man. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to be tested. Show me if Allah does that. Does Allah ever get dirt under his fingernails as a carpenter? Does he know what it means to be as a man? No, he doesn't. You will not, outside of the Trinity of the Word of God, find anything that is comparable. Never, ever, period. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. One of the most unpopular, politically incorrect verses of all Scripture. That's why we use it. John 14, 6 and 7, that whole context in there. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, because no man can come to the Father any other way than through the person of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to move on now to his death and some of the amazing things that come out of what he has done for us on the cross. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your Son. We thank you that you've spoken down through the corridors of time that we may understand at least something about this amazing person. That he can both be God and be man at the same time. He can be our intercessory high priest who was affected, touched, and experienced all the temptations that we experience, and yet perfect. Because he perfectly walked by faith. He perfectly was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can, in our down moments, look to him as not only our model, but the one from whom we get the life to do what he did. We thank you that you have bestowed this through regeneration 
upon us as believers. And may we wake up out of our doldrums and out of our sleepiness spiritually to realize how much we have already had put into our souls by regeneration, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, to bring the life of Christ into our hearts that we can connect with this most wonderful celebrity of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. See, Debbie, if you don't ask it the first one, there'll be somebody else that asks. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, what, what things were like in the antediluvian world is a, is a guess. Basically. It's profound to me that it would deteriorate to the point where he would regret that he would have created it. I just find that amazing that we're even here to be able to have that. Well, uh, Dave, one of the things that um, becomes apparent when you look at history from the scriptural point of view, um, next year we'll get into dispensations, but every age that God has structured in history ends in a disappointment. The garden was a perfect environment. You know, how many times have you heard the politicians and political thinkers thinking that, oh, if we could just change the environment? That experiment was already done. You had a perfect environment and men fell. So, environment's not the answer. That was the proof of Genesis 1, 2. Then we had a period of history that went from the fall of man to the flood didn't have any civil government, wasn't any capital punishment authorized. Apparently, angels had some sort of ruling function, super guys, and this was human society without any of the, quote, government, thing, the bad things of government. Well, um, you know, George was just telling me, he's got this friend who's an anarchist, and um, these people really honestly think that the problem to all men is, is the government. Well, the second age of history demonstrates that that's fluke because that age without a government ended in the catastrophe. People without government, man has proved that he doesn't function. Got to have it. So every time you, we resent, I know, I do too, you know, resent some of the things about government. But we have to back up after a while and say, wait a minute, why do we have government? Why do we have it? Because it was proven in history that the human race almost killed itself without it. And today, the example is a mob. People without, when the government fails to provide a law and orderly structure, humanity, being depraved, turns into a big mob. Always has, always will. So, that's that age of history. Then you come and you have this period when God gives civil government and he gives it to the sons of Noah. He tells them to go out basically and colonize the earth. And we wind up with wars and ethnic separations and all kinds of problems there. And we have an experiment with world governments called the Tower of Babel. We're going to all get together, have perfect unity. And the problem was the unity was structured on a godless basis that I, you know, that same spirit, I will set up, I will rule. And no, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way. So there's another experiment went down the drain. And then God calls out a family. 
And during the time of Abraham, that family wanders around as pilgrims in the earth, in the, all the land. And they're specially guided. God gives special revelation to them. In three generations, the family is so deteriorated, they have to go down to Egypt in the cooler for a couple of centuries before they get straightened out. So there goes the idea of your perfect family. And then we come along, we have the perfect nation. You know, if God would just set up a society, well, God said, okay, I'll do it. I'll rescue you people. We'll put you in a land. I mean, talk about a social experiment on a mass scale. Talk about exporting democracy and freedom. There was, there was God's foreign policy. He said, I'll do, do you one better. I'll provide you with gold. I'll provide you with raw materials. I'll provide you with a land. And moreover, I will provide you with a framework of law called the Mosaic Covenant. And that's a fascinating study. We don't ever, in, in church history, sadly, in our century, uh, I guess the Puritans are the last people ever studied it seriously, but embedded in the Mosaic Law Code are amazing things. The duration of loans, banking rates, um, public uh, hygiene, um, you name it, it's in there. Uh, all kinds of insights in, into what we call the social problems. Uh, laws that concern education. Uh, laws that concern rules of evidence. Um, it's all embedded in this. So what happened? God had a perfectly structured society, did the whole experiment, and what happened? Men resisted. The whole thing came down the drain. Well, then God starts another thing and says, okay, let's have a church age. And what we're going to do is we're going to go out and I'll, I'll offer each person salvation in every culture on earth. We won't, we won't make, you know, I'm not going to come in as the king now so people won't get vibrating. We're just going to go out one to one. And this age ends in the fact that the world is still unbelieving. So it doesn't buy a corporate message. It doesn't buy an individual message. It doesn't buy the ruler. I mean, every one of these things is a disproof of something. So you come down to the end of history and man has so thoroughly refuted his claim that he can rule that that's why history concludes with the fact that there's no other alternative except to have God rule. And at that time, everybody's convinced. Because by that time, we've tried. Oh, God, don't do that. I'll try it this way. Okay, go ahead. Try it that way. Watch what happens. Well, now, I got another idea, God. Wait, 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 wait. I got another idea. Try it this way. All right, try it that way. And all the triads are through. And history ends. And God says, see? You wind up doing it my way. So, it is amazing that, that human race can do what it can do. But, it, but it causes you as a Christian to sit back and reflect. Uh, tonight, I didn't have time because we were so pushed. Um, you remember how that Daniel 7 passage starts out? It starts out with water. And it says, I looked and I saw the sea. And then it says, the four winds of heaven began to blow on the sea and stirred the waters. Then out from the sea came the four monsters. Well... The, if we had the time to develop it, we'd show that the word the sea um, is a strange thing. Uh, water is a strange thing. Large bodies of water are uh, totally passive to wind, to winds. Uh, one of the most famous disasters in American history is Lake Ochibo in Florida, Okeechobee or whatever it is, and it's a freshwater lake, but it's very shallow. 
and there came a hurricane or something on it, and wind was just right. It picked the lake up and moved it. Uh, because w with the water body, if you don't get return flow, if it's not deep enough, you don't get return flow. So all the momentum that's being transferred into the water just goes like that. So water, water uh, is affected by wind forces very much. And in that picture, as Daniel dreamed, and God was talking to Daniel in his dream, he said the winds of four, the four winds of heaven, meaning that first it was blown east, west, north, south. It was just chaos operating on the water. Now, what does the water represent in that vision? Humanity. And what do the winds represent? The spiritual powers of history. Whipping up the sea. And see, we, we look down in our horizontal area at political movements. And our analysis from the horizontal is, well, it's economic, it's racial, it's ethnic, it's this, it's that, it's political, it's democracy versus totalitarianism. That's all our an analysis. But Daniel, because he dealt with foreign relations, had to get set in his mind as he dealt, I mean, he dealt with kingdom problems. He dealt with foreign relations between Babylon and the other surrounding nations. He had to have a concept and a clue. As a believer, Daniel said, where are my people? You know, I'm, I'm talking about Babylon, man. I'm talking about Assyria. I'm talking about uh, Media Persia and my little Jewish people. You know, we don't even have our nation anymore. Where do we fit in all this? We're squashed. We don't have any economic power. We don't have any political power. How can, what are you doing, God? And so, in that vision, God says, here's what I'm doing. I'm letting evil, the winds, the four winds of heaven, operate on men. And out of this, men fully cooperating, we will develop all the solutions that men try. And then, and then it's over, and the Son of Man comes. So, it's a profound picture of history and the fact that the human race is ultimately, apart from Christ and regeneration, is very, very unstable. Very vulnerable to evil spirits and powers and movements. Can, it fads and can dominate entire generations. Um, and, and, and with our globalism today and the internet and the communication we've got, you watch how fast fads will culminate. Now, now you'll see the penetration uh, almost back to Tower of Babel, where the, the previous ethnic separations that played such a role will be completely overridden rapidly within minutes and hours. So it's going to be interesting. You know, it's kind of neat to watch, you know, because we can see that winds can stimulate what they can stimulate. So look on that passage in Daniel as, a, as just a revelation of what's behind foreign policy. Pretty, pretty neat to look at Daniel that way. Instead of looking at it the way most Christians do, well, who's the third beast and this and that. I mean, that's important questions. I'm not knocking that. But I'm just saying, go beyond that and ask yourself, why would Daniel be picked for that revelation? What was he doing every day of his life? What was his calling in life? And then you understand the meaning of the book. A traitor? Yeah, I mean, here, here his country is taken over. He's taken as a slave, and, and or, you know, and then, and then he goes and works. How, how was there a lot of animosity toward him because of that, or, or not? Did they have a different view of, of life? Did they see Daniel as their inside man? Probably. 
uh, probably like Esther. Uh, the Jews in the exile had a real problem, and the motif of their life was basically controlled by the prophecy given through Jeremiah. When God spoke to Jeremiah, he said, when you go into exile, you're being punished. I'm punishing the nation. And it's a disciplinary function. You're, you're sorry, but it's going to come on you nationally. And so this is your life, and don't try to fight it. You're being spanked. And you're being exiled for 70 years. And there's nothing you can do about it, because I said you're going to do it. You didn't, you didn't follow the Sabbaths. You left 70 Sabbaths go, and you never paid respect to it. So now you're going to pay them back. Pay them back to me. So they were kind of beaten down in the sense that, well, you know, I mean, gee, God's mad at us. What else can we do? So where they tried to form businesses, see, the Jews are always attacked because they're, oh, they're bankers and they're businessmen. Well, what else are they supposed to be? They weren't allowed to do anything else. So that's how they got into these businesses. And, and they were good at it. The Jews are very talented people. And Daniel got to, to rise like Joseph did in Egypt. And sure, there's probably lots of Jews that envied him, but that wasn't godly envy. That was just jealousy. Daniel is a great role model. Wonderful biography, the book of Daniel. I mean, you talk about a guy who was not an obscurantist. He was a man who was a participator in the political processes. And yet he never lost his bearings. Never lost his bearings. When it came to, to bureaucratic legislation and administrative law that said you can't pray, you can't do this, he said, no. I'm not only going to pray, I'm going to pray with a window open. So go ahead. So he didn't compromise, but yet he, also, he didn't rebel either. He didn't lead a rebellion against Babylon. He quietly went about his job. And where it led to a conflict, hey, it's in the Lord's hands. Um, we were talking today, uh, about, uh, about being literalists. And obviously, there's, there's really, you can't be a literalist, because that's an absolute thing you were saying earlier. But how do you, I mean, you were just talking a minute ago, saying, well, I mean, these were all illusions, the seed was uh, humanity, the, the, uh, the winds were the spirits of, of the age, and so on. Where do you draw the line of interpreting something literally versus... Well, it, it, there's no problem in Daniel because the second half of Daniel 7, the angel tells him what those are. Okay. There's an interpreting... Most apocalyptic literature, there's an interpreting angel. It's one of the hallmarks, whether it's in Zechariah, Daniel, or um, even in, in John, in the book of Revelation. Places, these guys, when these visions happen, they didn't know, they didn't have a clue any more than you and I do. And, and Daniel's saying that. And Daniel saying, he says, what is this all about? I had this dream. What? Tell me about it. And he sees this angel. And he talks to the angel and says, hey, can, you know, I need some help here. And the angel helps her. So do they fall in those categories that, that where you can't interpret something literally? It's shown you have to start with literal interpretation. I mean, the sea has to be sea. The symbol grows out of the literal. You never can just have a symbol. The only reason those symbols work is because the first is a literal truth behind them. If the water didn't act like water, then it could never become the symbol of instability. So the way you control that is you control it by the promises of God, the covenants, structures, and so forth. You don't never you never try to spiritualize, allegorize, or, or, or that in your interpretation 
when the point is being made that God is fulfilling a literal promise back there. Legal language. Visualize your mortgage and your car payment thing. And you're not going to go to the bank and, and allegorize the contract. So where you have contractual language, you can't allegorize. There's no hermeneutic on earth that permits you to allegorize a contract. That's the problem that people don't see. And that's because they don't see the, the role and nature of covenants in Scripture. It's ignored. I mean, theologians ignore it. Seminaries ignore it. Are these the rules behind hermeneutics? Yeah. Hermeneutics is about interpreting literature. And the struggle we have as Christians in our time is not because there's something wrong with the Bible. The hermeneutic structure happens to law. Now think about it. This country was written, this country was given a constitution. The people who wrote the constitution didn't expect that you had to have professional people spending their entire lives second-guessing what they wrote. I mean, these guys got up here in Philadelphia and other places and they just wrote up the document. You know, they would, they'd be absolutely horrified to see the layers of bureaucratic legislation that grew up on this document when they intended it to be so simple and straightforward. The problem is that it occurs in law, it occurs in literature. You can't go to any English literature class in public school today and have a serious discussion about what did Shakespeare mean by this. It's always, well, he was a, he was a white, male, heterosexual Englishman. Well, so what? I mean, you know, can white, heterosexual male write English? Can they write a letter? Can I read it? Or do I have to be a white, heterosexual male Englishman to understand Shakespeare? Yeah. But all the 20th century... Has been, a, has been an assault on language. Today, there isn't a public school going. I'll bet you, there's here and there, there's some valiant English teachers that are still trying to hold the line. God bless them. But they're, they're one in a hundred. That uh, we, we had a young lady here get her master's in Towson State. Her mother was sitting right back there tonight. And she tried teaching around here and she got squashed. Because she tried to bring in legitimate interpretation in one of the well-known high schools here in Harvard County. And they crawled all over. That's not, that's not contemporary thought. Well, no. Because contemporary thought is screwed up. That's why. I don't want contemporary thought. So, it's not true that we just... It's just us Christians having a hermeneutic problem over in our whole religious corner here. This is a big disease. And the tragedy of this particular disease is, is if it gets much worse, we're going to have a whole population out there we can't even witness to. Because the gospel assumes that we can talk rationally in a language. You don't go, ooh, ah, and feel your way to Christ. You're, the gospel is spoken to you, and you trust it. It, can, it. it presumes that. So the pastor here, you know, guys that are preaching the word of God, how can they preach to an illiterate group of people who can't understand language? So, it's a big battle, and it's not... I don't mean to sidelight the hermeneutic discussion, but you've got to see that it's, the lawyers are having this time with it in law. What does the law mean? Well, we, you know, the, the biggest, most profound discussion we've had, in my opinion, in the Houses of Congress, was the attempted um, confirmation hearings on Judge Bork. And that got kind of passed over. Bork and Thomas were two men who were nominated to the Supreme Court who have a philosophic predisposition to literal interpretation of the Constitution. 
and absolutely horrified men in both political parties. Speaking politically, that's exactly what the founding fathers said in, I guess it was the Federalist Papers. Then they expound in there that they, did ne that they never wanted the Constitution or any amendment to it to ever be interpreted, um, but always to be looked at literally. Well, it wasn't until the 20s or 30s, which was like the first time we had the Supreme Court. Well, what you've had, what you have in a nutshell, is you have decisions made on the basis of sociological statistics. It's because I have a political feeling, and I read that into the law, and I manipulate the law to serve that purpose. And the idea is that that's not that's making sociology the norm, not the law the norm. And Bork and Thomas, Bork more than Thomas, argued that if the law, Constitution doesn't infer law one, two, three, and eight, then I got as a judge, I, I throw out law one, two, three, and eight because it's non-justified. And of course, one, two, three, and eight included the 1964 civil rights legislation, which everybody agrees, and Bork agreed to that concept, but he disagreed as to how that civil rights legislation was built. It wasn't built legitimately on an inference from the Constitution. It was just tacked on, and then it was patched into the Constitution. Well, let's see, here's a place where it sounds good. Now, if you think about it, that's exactly what's happening in Scripture. That's what theologians do all the time. We don't like this section of the Bible, so we'd rather have a Jesus that looked this way, so then we'll read him in over here. You know, we've got a little sneaky verse in here. It's a little greasy, so we can slip that kind of deal in. That's what goes on. You have a big advantage, as you're not theologians, okay. because you just naively read the scripture. That, that's that's your strength. So without so without a trained hermeneutic, you think we could benefit more? Your your the hermeneutic. You don't need to have a trained hermeneutic. You just need to be intuitively. When you talk to your wife, do you expect her to understand what you mean, or do you expect her to reinterpret 85 ways? Well, we better not get into that. <laughs> well, we're running out of time, but the, the idea hermeneutically is that it's what all human beings intuitively do. If you write a letter to your friend, wouldn't you be horrified if you came and visited your friend's house a year after they got your letter and they had a committee in the living room with your letter spread out all the floor with vast arguments about what it meant? What would be your impression if you did that? Or a whole fan club over here. Ooh, this letter is cool. We got it framed and we're having discussions about it every night. Was that why you wrote the letter to your friend? Yeah, you wanted to talk to him, that's all. <laughs> Simple. So we lost the simplicity of language, that's all. And I think with scripture, the first step should be to take it literally. Absolutely. And then, then if, if, you, yes. if it doesn't quite fit literally, Absolutely. Other parts of scripture to see if it's you start out with a C meaning C and go from there. Well, and that, and that makes sense. And that's what I've always done, like the prodigal son. If somebody tries to, to spiritualize that out or allegorize that out to, to, to say that there, was, there never was a son and there never was a man. That was just an all made up story. Um, I say, why? Well, the, the, the key is all your narratives should be taken at prima facie value, unless it's, I mean, you know, we get a sense of what's symbolic, 
and, and just think of your normal, everyday conversations. That's all. That's all we have to do. If you tell your kid, do this and don't do this, you don't expect him to go out and have 15 of his buddies sit there that are amateur lawyers reinterpreting the third phrase of your verb of what you really meant when you said that. Yeah, but that's getting back to the literal text. All I'm talking about is being facetious about this stuff, you know. But our time is up, and, and people have to leave. So next week, uh, we'll move on now and get into the death of Christ. Okay?